right. Well, I want to spend the next couple minutes of our time together uh, talking about this idea of worship. Like it's it's a word that we throw around a lot, um, especially you know in a context like this. You know, we're here at church, but it's also a, a word that. Uh, we just we use in culture too. It makes its way into our regular conversations, and so you know, in, in culture we have the concept of celebrity worship. Uh, we have phrases like you know, uh, she worships the ground that he walks on, or they they uh, they worship at the uh, the throne or the altar of the almighty dollar, things like that. And we come into a space like this, and we talk about you know, we might describe this as a worship service, and we have. Uh, worship leaders, really good ones, by the way, and worship team, and they just crush it every week. Uh, we, we sing worship music, or we think about it just particularly as the musical part of the service. And so in culture and in church life, this idea of worship takes on uh, a meaning. It has um, a meaning, and it has significance. But here's the actual definition, because it can mean a lot of different things. Uh, I believe this came from Webster's online. So worship is to show honor or reverence for it is to have extravagant respect or admiration for or devotion to an object of esteem. Extravagant respect or admiration or devotion to an object of esteem. I think that pretty well captures the, the meaning of worship in the way that, that we use it. And so what I want to do, though, is give my definition uh, for worship um, because I'm going to paint a little bit of a word picture for us as we go throughout this message Take that idea of extravagant devotion or um, admiration or esteem, and let's think about it this way. It is the thing that you place at the center of your universe. Like, it's just, it is the thing that, like, that thing, whatever is at the center of your universe, that everything in your life revolves around, that is, like, the object of your worship. If you think about like the, the sun in our solar system, it, it, like it's there in the center. It has such a gravitational pull that everything is rotating around it. Everything is revolving around it. So what is at the center of our universe that everything rotates around? Like the thing that your life, your time, your money, your sense of identity, your sense of purpose and calling and belonging, like it, your affections are all oriented around this thing. That would be the thing that you worship. And with that definition, worship is definitely not just a a religious thing or a faith thing, everybody has something that sits in that position in their life. Like everybody has something or a couple of things. It's like, yeah, my life revolves around this thing or these few things. Um, and again, that's not, a, that's not like a religious position. Uh, it doesn't matter what your story is, your faith background is. We all have this. Uh, in fact, it has been said that, that humans by nature, we all worship something. Like, we're just, like, made to do it. We can't escape it. We all, like, find ourselves doing this um, and putting something in that position. Uh, there was um, an author by the name of David Foster Wallace um, who did a uh, commencement uh, speech at, I think, Kenyon College back in 2004, and he did this speech that, that kind of became pretty well known for this particular section on worship, um, and he was not a particularly religious person. He may have considered himself spiritual, much more likely just agnostic, but he said this, and I think it captures it so well. He said that in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. 
everybody worships. He's like, you're best off. And this is coming from like a, not, a guy that does not subscribe to any particular religion, but like you're better off having a sense of faith and worshiping God because anything else that you put in the center of your universe will eat you alive. And he goes on to give some examples and says, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. Never feel that you have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, and you'll feel weak and afraid, and you'll need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect as being seen as smart, and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. And then he says this to close it. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is they're unconscious. They're the default setting. There's this idea that all of us, we all put something uh, in that center place in our lives, but are we aware of what we're putting there? Are we aware, like, what is it that my life actually revolves around, where I, where I place the most significance in my life? See, everybody worships. The, the question actually is, what do I worship? What is that thing? And, you know, he listed some big ones in that, that speech. He talked about uh, money and, and sex and power and intellect you know, we, we, we find ourselves putting all kinds of things in that slot of here's the center of my life. Maybe it's the things that he mentioned. Maybe it's uh, something along the, the, the lines of success or maybe it's along the lines of like family. There's just something that's like everything revolves around this thing. Um, I think a lot of times it boils down to like there's three big ones that get talked about all the time, like these three kind of massive things and lots of categories under them. And it's, uh, it's power, sex, and money or stuff. Like those are the three. It's just like so many things fall under those things. We worship power. And sometimes that's like me having power, so I want to be seen as important. I want to be able to throw my weight around and, and have power in that way. Or sometimes it's not even me having power. It's the idea that power can fix things. And so I'll, I'll place that, that worship, that power at the, at the feet of, of like a political altar and say, this is the answer to everything. My politics are my identity. They are my hope. They are the solution to the future and every problem that we have. Uh, we, we worship at the, at the altar of, of sex, that everything, like it's almost become a religion in and of itself. It's like this is where you find meaning and value and purpose and identity. We worship at the, the altar of, of, of money or just material possessions, that a little more stuff will make things better, will make me happy, will make me content. I'll find hope. Things will be okay. Like we go to these things. What are we worshiping? And by the way, that's not a if you're not a Christian, you worship these things, but if you're a Christian, you just worship Jesus all the time. That ain't true, right? Like in my daily life, there's like a, yeah, I love Jesus, but if I could just make a pit stop at the altar of, of stuff for a second, I'd be, it'd be a good day, right? And there's this pull to worship these other things. Um, so the, the question is not, do you worship? You do, but, but what is that thing? And then there's a follow-up question that's even more important. The follow-up question is this, is it worthy of my worship? Is the thing that's at the center of my universe worthy of that. And worthy in, in two kind of senses of the word, the first sense being like, is it deserving? Like, has it done something that, that actually deserves worship? And the second sense of the word worthy, meaning can it hold up to the weight uh, that I'm leaning on it? If you've ever, uh, you know, been around like a boat or seen like in a movie and they're like, oh no, we got to cross this body of water and there's only this rickety old boat. And they'll ask the question, is she seaworthy? right? They're not asking the questions like, is this boat deserving of me getting on it? No, it's asking the question like, can it, can it hold up? Will it survive or will it sink? And there's, 
When it comes to things that we worship, we got to ask of its worthiness in that way too. Like, can it hold up under the weight of what I'm putting on it? If I decide to put this thing at the center of my universe, like, will it actually hold or will it leave me sunk at the bottom of the ocean and destroyed? Like, can I actually find lasting meaning and purpose and value? What about when my world falls apart and my life falls apart and my body falls apart and I lose loved ones? Like, is the thing that I've been worshiping strong enough to hold me in those moments? Is it worthy? Um, spoiler alert, and you're just going to be like, oh, you gave us the whole point right there. I guess we can leave. Um, we think at Hope Community that Jesus is the only thing that's worthy of our worship. You're like, okay, that's the sermon. You can go home now, right? Oh, but we do. Like, we think he's worthy in both, both aspects, that he is deserving. Like, like, he is the only one who is deserving because of who he is and what he's done, that, that God became human, that he walked this earth, that he lived a perfect life, that he died for our sins, that he rose from the dead. We're like, yeah, he actually is deserving of worship but we also think he's worthy as in the only, the only thing that we can put at the center of our universe that will hold up to the weight of life, that he's worthy in that regard as well. And so what I want to do over the course of the next couple of minutes together is, is not really argue that like Jesus is worthy of worship. That's something that we all got to figure out. We'll touch on that here and there, but really answer the question of, well, what does that actually look like? What does it look like to worship Jesus as that's what we're here to do? So John chapter 12 is where we're picking things up today. John 12, starting in verse 1, we read this. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. So John opens things up and kind of sets the scene for us. He lets us know like, the timeline here. He lets us know where they're at and who's involved. So it's six days before the Passover. Um, this is a very specific Passover in the life of Jesus. This would be uh, his final Passover. Uh, so it would be on this Passover, the time that he is, he's arrested, uh, he's crucified. He, three days later, he rises from the dead. And so um, they're at this, this home. Right after this, they're, they're going into Jerusalem. It's the triumphal entry. Everyone's like, yay, we love Jesus. And a couple days later, they're like, kill him. Uh, so that's what's about to happen. So that's kind of the timeline. And then John says they're in Bethany uh, with Lazarus and Martha. And so we came out of John chapter 11 the last couple of weeks, and there's this, this amazing account, this beautiful story. There's this family, Lazarus, and then two sisters, Mary and Martha. And Lazarus gets sick. Lazarus gets so sick that he dies. Jesus shows up. Everyone's grieving. Everyone's mourning. And Jesus shows up and raises Lazarus from the dead. So it's this family and their home and the, the town that they're from. And so everyone's kind of abuzz about this. And so they have a, a dinner um, to, to honor Jesus because they're like, you just raised the guy from the dead and Lazarus is there. And I can just imagine that people are like poking him like, no, you're not really. He's like, stop touching me. I'm alive, okay? Uh, and, and Jesus is there because they're like, you've raised this guy. We're honoring you. And we read that Martha is there and Martha's serving. If you know anything about Martha, you kind of read her, some details of her life and other, uh, other gospel accounts and you're like, course she's serving because that's Martha. She's like, I'm going to do things. I'm type A. It needs to be organized, mark stuff off the list. I'm like, thank you, Martha. Okay. Like that's my, it's like, yes, like get stuff, get tasks done. Um, and so we got Lazarus, we got Jesus, we've got Martha, but one of the siblings so far is missing. And that would be, uh, that would be Mary. Um, but we, we encounter her next. John says, then Mary took about a pint of pure nard and expensive perfume and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. 
And so we got, we got Jesus and we got, we got Lazarus, we got Martha, we've got presumably some guests there at the table, the reclining at the table, which was how they would eat. Um, they didn't eat like sitting up like we do. It was like a kind of a low table and you're kind of like, ha- kind of like laying down, half leaning up. It was a nice, because like that little posture there. I'm sure it did not look like that, okay? Um, but it's, it's just a very comfortable, it's, 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 a, it's a setting of just, just like intimate friendship and hospitality and welcome into a home. And, and Lazarus is there and Martha's there and there's some guests there and Jesus is there. The disciples are likely there. And, and here comes Mary. And Mary shows up and, and John's like, here's what Mary does when, when she enters into the room. She takes a pint of pure nard, which we're like, what the heck is pure nard? And John's like, well, I, I'm anticipating people might be reading this who don't know what pure nard is. It is expensive. It is an expensive perfume. Uh, and when he says it's an expensive perfume, this is not an exaggeration. It was rare, first of all, because of uh, where it was, where it's harvested from. Nard comes from a, uh, a particular plant that grows in like India and into Asia. And so all the commentaries I was looking at was like, yeah, this nard most likely came from the area of Nepal. Uh, and they're in Bethany outside of Jerusalem. That's a long way away in the ancient world. So this nard had to come a long, long way. So it was expensive. It was valuable. Because it was so expensive and rare and valuable, it's likely something that had been in uh, the family for maybe several decades, several generations. It was something that they would pull out only on occasion, like when on a really special occasion to be like, and you get a little drop, right? Because it's a big deal. It's really expensive. In fact, it's so expensive, we're going to get this detail a little bit later, that it was worth about 300 Denarii. Now, denarius was one day's wages for like your average kind of worker, average day laborer. So this is three, this is like a whole year's worth of wages, like for a regular person. Now, I don't know what all y'all make. Some of you, like you're working right now, some of you are retired, some of you may not be working quite yet, you're not at that stage of life, but you just anticipate that you will be someday. I want you to think about what you think you'll, what you will make in a year, what you currently make in a year, or what you used to make in a year. I want you to, to have that amount in your head and think of something that expensive and just going, ha, 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 right? Like she just pours it out at Jesus' feet. And like, I want us to notice this. It's not like something that you can like, here, Jesus, I'm giving you something that can be used for something else. It's not practical. It's not pragmatic. And after she pours it out, you can't be like, well, let me just gather that back up and we can use it again. Like, no, it's just, it's just done. It's on the ground. It's soaking into the floor. Just dumps it out. Think about what you would make in a year. You're going, yeah, sounds like a good idea. I'm totally going to do that. It is, it is extravagant. It is extreme. It is, uh, it is ridiculous. Honestly, it, it, it seems irresponsible. It seems foolish to do such a thing. But here's Mary dumping it at Jesus' feet. Right? And then that's not the only uh, shocking thing about this, this detail. There's several things that's going on here. So it wasn't unusual for um, you to anoint an, an honored guest who would come into your home, uh, but you anointed their head, not their feet, so that's a little weird. Uh, and that would usually be done at a different time. Like when they came into the house, they would wipe their feet with water and then maybe anoint their head with oil. Uh, and so like that part was kind of common, but like Mary just shows up in the middle of dinner right, with everybody around. It's like, I think this is a good time to anoint Jesus, and it's going to be his feet. And then you have uh, the, the added layer. Not only is it the, kind of the wrong time, the wrong setting, way expensive, but you have the, this added layer that she wipes Jesus' feet with her hair. For Jewish women in the first century, your hair was a symbol of beauty and modesty and intimacy. So Jewish women would keep their hair like tied up and covered. The only time the hair got uncovered and came down was in the presence of your husband. 
It was an idea of like, this is something, this is something that is only to, to happen in the most trusted, the most, the closest, the most uh, intimate of relationships where I'm, I can be vulnerable, I can be myself. Like only, only one person gets to see this because there's such love and affection and devotion. And so can you imagine the people at, at, at this, like sitting around this table, they're eating, they're having a good time and Mary walks in. And first thing, she's just like, wham. She probably didn't do it like that, but I like to picture it that way. You know, it's like spiking a football in the end zone. She just walks in. It's like, boom, and like perfume everywhere. And then they're like, whoa, we know how expensive that was. That was crazy because maybe they're thinking like, oh, she's going to come out and give Jesus a little doop. And she's like, no, 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 just smashes it at his feet. And then they're already shocked. And then she starts like undoing her hair and her hair starts coming down. And they're just like, no, 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 no. You can't do this. You can't do this. Everything about this. This act, this, this moment screams, this, this is extreme. It's the wrong time, the wrong place, the wrong person, breaking cultural norms. It's way too expensive. Everything about what she's doing in the eyes of the world around her would say, it's wrong. You don't, you don't worship Jesus like that. That's not okay. And what I love about that, though, is this idea, it's crazy worship, but you can tell in this moment, the only thing, the only thing at the center of Mary's universe is Jesus. It's like in that moment, in that room, it's like she doesn't even recognize, like the other people don't even exist. She's like, it's just me and him. And he is worthy. This, is, this perfume would have been the most valuable thing that she had. And here she is saying, it is nothing compared to him. It's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. This, this, this thing that she does, and equally as important, is not just the, the thing that she does, because sometimes we can get confused and think, well, okay, worship is just things that we do then, right? It's like I come to church and I worship or I give some money and that's worship. But it's not just the things that we do. Worship is the posture that we take. It's the posture. You notice where Mary is to do this. She's at Jesus' feet. So with, with him, you know, kind of reclining at the table for her to be able to pour the perfume on and, and wipe his feet with her hair, she would either have to kneel down, right, or she would actually have to like lay beside like all out on the ground to, to wipe his feet. Like she is down at the feet of Jesus. And that is the posture of worship. It's, it's, it's a full life lived saying, no matter what I do, no matter where I go, no matter how I act, no matter whether it's at work or at home or with friends or with family uh, or when I'm by myself or the way that I do money, sex, family, all, everything, it's, it's a whole life posture of I'm here at the feet of Jesus. I'm at his feet. I'm humbling myself at the feet of Jesus. And that's actually something that Mary does multiple times in the gospels. It's like every time you see Mary, she's like, there she is at Jesus' feet again. And so one other time this happens is in Luke's gospel. Now there's a typo in this verse reference. It says 38 through 49. It's only through 39, but it's all good. Um, we read that while they were traveling, Jesus, he, Jesus, entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. And she had a sister named Mary who also sat at the Lord's feet and was listening to what he said. And so this, this kind of happens, and, and Martha is, is doing what a host is supposed to do, what's culturally expected at that time. She's making preparations. She's feeding the guests. She's making things, sure things are cleaned up. She's being a good host. It's what's expected of her. And Mary's just sitting there, and she's like, Jesus, like, tell her to help me. And Jesus is like, I'm not going to do that because what she's doing is, is good. And what she was doing, what Mary was doing, was sitting at the Lord's feet and listening. Listening. That phrase, to sit at someone's feet, was a phrase that was used in the first century of what a disciple did at a rabbi's feet. Disciples sat at the feet of their rabbis and learned. It's the posture of discipleship. And this isn't part of the message, but like when we encounter, I mean, it's part of the message, I couldn't want to say it. It's not the main point of the message, but I just want us to see when we encounter things like this, how it affects our day-to-day -day lives. 
to these first century readers, they all would have understood this clearly, that this is the posture of a disciple. And they also all would have known clearly, too, that women weren't disciples. It's like, no, like men got to be disciples. They got to follow rabbis. Women did not. This is Jesus breaking every cultural norm, saying, yeah, I'm starting a different movement. And so, man, in our current time, in our current age, when people, when people kind of come out and say, hey, listen, when people either use Christianity to, like, you know, hold women down, or when people say Christianity is inherently patriarchal, I don't think that's right. It's like, I don't think you've read the Bible, right? Because like, like, Jesus does more for like the, the elevation of the status of women than anybody in history. He breaks these cultural norms, and it's a beautiful thing. And here's Mary at the feet of Jesus learning, the posture of a disciple. It, it, it's, it's, it's humbling herself at Jesus' feet to sit there and to learn and say, I want you to teach me. I want you to show me. I, I want to learn from you. I want to take your yoke, as Jesus says, take your yoke upon me. I want to follow in your way. And that is worship, because worship's about the posture. It's about us sitting at the feet of Jesus. When we sit at the feet of Jesus as disciples and learn, it is an act of worship to sit there and to say, okay, Jesus, I need you to teach me. I want to learn from you. I need you to teach me who I am. I, I don't want to determine for myself who I am or what culture, who culture says I am or who my family says I am or anybody else. Like, I need you to tell me who I am because you have made me and you love me and you have died for me. Only you get to tell me who I am. Teach me who I am. Teach me who you are, Jesus. Again, I don't want to take somebody else's word for it. I don't want to come to my own, like on my own, in my, my own intellect, informed conclusion about who you are and what you're like. Or I, I don't want the internet to tell me who you are. I don't want my friends or my family. I don't even want my church to tell me who you are. Like church is a tool, but at the end of the day, Jesus, I want to know for myself who you are. Teach me. Teach me what it looks like to follow you. T- teach me, would you teach me what my purpose is? What it looks like to live with purpose and not just go through the motions. Would you teach me what it looks like to live a Christ-centered life? Teach me what it looks like to be a, a Christ-centered student, Christ-centered single person, a Christ-centered, uh, what, is, what does a Christ-centered marriage look like? What, what does it look like to be a, a, a Christ-centered parent? How, what does it look like to put Jesus at the center of, of every relationship and the way that I love my neighbor and the, and the way that I, I carry myself at work? Just Would you just show me? Would you teach me how to follow you? Here I am at your feet learning from you in an act of worship. Mary sits at Jesus' feet and she, she listens. She learns. It's worship. There's another moment where Mary is at the feet of Jesus, and um, we just actually encountered this first couple of weeks ago. Lazarus has died. Jesus shows up. Everyone's grieving. And he goes to approach Mary, and this is what happens. As soon as Mary came to where Jesus was, she saw him, and she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Here's what worship also is. It's being honest with God. Worship is being at the feet, falling at the feet of Jesus even when life is awful and saying life, life sucks right now and it is hard and it is painful and I am broken and I am confused and I am angry and I don't like any of this, but here I am at your feet. It's this, this, this practice of lament that so often we've lost, to lament, to, to recognize how broken and how messed up things are, but still at the same time hold intention with that, the goodness and the love of God. That worship doesn't always have to be happy, clappy, hands raised. Don't get me wrong, I love that. Like, I love coming here. I love lifting my hands and clapping and singing about how good God is. But that's not the only expression of worship. In fact, if that's, if that's not what you're feeling, if things are awful and we do that, it's like, I'm just gonna kind of put a face on it and act like things are perfectly fine, then that's not even worship. The worship is when I'm broken, coming in and still saying, you know what, everything is awful. Everything is falling apart. I do not feel these words that I sing but I'm gonna sing them anyway because even though I don't feel it, I know it's true. 
and I'm going to sit in my brokenness. I'm going to fall at the feet of Jesus and just weep and just mourn. And it's beautiful, the reaction, as we read a couple weeks ago, that, that happens out of that. Like Jesus just enters into Mary's pain, and he weeps with her, and she experiences healing. It's worship to be at the feet of Jesus even when life is falling apart. Mary's at the feet of Jesus learning. She's at the feet of Jesus weeping. And here we see her kneeling at the feet of Jesus in extreme just love and devotion, saying there's nothing in my life more valuable, more worthy than you. It's, it's this beautiful picture. It is like extreme worship, and not everybody's such a fan of it. In fact, even within this, this account, like someone speaks up and is like, I've got a problem with this. Verse 4 says that one of his disciples, one of Jesus' disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. So Jesus is there, and he's seeing this. He's seeing what Mary does, and he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I have a problem with this, okay? I mean, just the audacity, right, to be like, excuse me, ma'am. That's not okay. He's objecting. And, and again, just, just note that Judas is one of the disciples. He is following Jesus. He has been with Jesus for three years. It's just kind of tucked that away in the back of our minds that as we worship Jesus, we follow Jesus, we should expect opposition from the world around us we should also expect opposition from Christians as well, for people who are like, yeah, I'm following Jesus, but you're too extreme in your Jesus following. I object. Just a good word. I object to your Jesus following, sir. And here's Judas' objection. He says this, that wasn't, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Right, there's the value of it again. John gives us this little, this little like, note after the fact and says, hey, he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Judas has something different at the center of his universe. Judas likes stuff, and that's his real objective, and that's where his heart lies. But, but, but like the, the, on the surface, like his objection or complaint sounds good. It sounds righteous. Like, why didn't we just sell this and give it to the poor? Like, that would have been great, right? Because, again, like trying to, trying to make an act of worship always practical or always pragmatic or always to have a return on investment, that's not how worship works. It's almost as if Judas is like, listen, how dare you waste that on Jesus? And you're like, wait a minute, I didn't know you could waste things on Jesus. But that's the, that's the posture, right? And that, there's a danger that we can fall into in that as well. Like where we can get so focused on the, the doing of religious things that we forget about the worship of Jesus this, this idea of like, hey, doing justice and caring about the least of these and the poor and the outcast, the orphan, the widow, which is all incredibly important, by the way. Like scripture commands that. Jesus modeled that. It was taught over and over. We should pursue justice. We should pursue justice. We should pursue justice. And, oh boy, I'm gonna say a swear word in church. Ready? We should pursue <clears throat> social justice. I know some people have a problem with that term, but social justice is just justice that is lived out in society. And God has a lot to say about, hey, if you're a follower of mine, there's a way you should pursue justice in the world, in society around you. And that is absolutely important. But the danger we can fall into is when we value justice more than Jesus. Because Jesus comes along and says, I want you to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Both are important. But here's what I know, and here's what we see, is that authentic love and worship of Jesus will always lead to love of neighbor. If Jesus is at the center of your universe, love of neighbor is going to start orbiting around it. However, the opposite is not always true. If we begin with, I'm going to love people, we don't always end up with, and now I love Jesus. And so it's a, it's a matter of priority. And in fact, Jesus kind of calls this out in the next verse. He rebukes Judas and says, hey, leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial as he's foreshadowing his upcoming death. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. He's like, shut up, Judas. Mary's right. 
She's done a beautiful thing. She's done a good thing. Absolutely, I want you to care about the poor. I mean, you, can't, you cannot get away from Jesus' teaching or his life over and over and over. He's talking, you know, like, hey, you need to love your neighbor as yourself. You need to love your enemies. Hey, you need to, here's a parable about this guy called the Good Samaritan. Hey, I, who, whatever you've done for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you've done for me. Blessed are the poor. Like on and on and on Jesus goes. He's like, make sure the priorities are in line. If you will give me your worship and your devotion and your love, out of that will flow a love for the people around you. Judas doesn't like Mary's worship of Jesus. Judas sees Mary's worship of Jesus and thinks, that's crazy. It makes no sense. That is irresponsible. She's the, it's the wrong time. It's the wrong place. It's the wrong setting. She's the wrong person. It's too much money. Like, none of this is good. I got a problem with this. And so the question for us, for those of us that are Christians or followers of Jesus, this is the question that's uncomfortable is does our worship of Jesus elicit that kind of response from people? Like, that's a question for me. Like, does, does my life elicit that kind of response from people? Because if I'm honest, even as a pastor, I can live my life in such a way that's like, people are like, hmm, okay, look normal. Doesn't really seem like there's that much different. Okay, maybe you're, li- maybe, maybe you're like marginally nicer and a little more generous, but yeah, you seem like a normal person. Like, does our worship of Jesus elicit the response of people like, you're crazy, and not like, you know, bad crazy, okay? But like, but like, like it's, it's irresponsible. It's not like you can't, do, do, we, do we elicit the response of people that says, listen, you cannot be that generous. It's irresponsible for you to be that generous. Like I get give a little bit, but you got to save some for yourself, man. It's crazy. You're too generous. Does our, does our forgiveness of people elicit that response? When we say, I'm forgiving my enemies and I'm loving people that I disagree with, I'm loving people that hate me. And then I say, no, 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 you can forgive a little bit, but everybody else you got to write off and they got to be dead to you. Does it elicit the response of you're crazy? Does our, the way that we carry ourselves, like I've got standards and I've got ethics and there's a way that I live and there's lines I won't cross and there's a, a moral code that I uphold. And people go, no, that's crazy. And that's antiquated. And that's repressive. You just got to leave all that behind you. Like, do people actually see our lives and say, you're crazy. It's beautiful, but it's crazy. And do we get that response again from the world around us? But do we get that response even from other Christians? I would say the chairs around us, because it goes with the world around us and the chairs around us, but I love you all too much, and you're just crushing it. I know it. I love you all. You do, Really, you are doing great. I, I love our church, because like, I'm asking these questions that are a little bit rhetorical, and I'm like, yeah, I see y'all. You're like, you're doing this. You're loving Jesus, but let's keep, let's keep with it. Because like I said at the beginning, there, there's this pull sometimes, like I'm worshiping Jesus, but sometimes I want to make a little pit stop at the altar of money or power or sex or whatever it is, or politics or family or, uh, you know, whatever. Does it elicit the your crazy kind of response? I hope my life and my faith does. And I know it doesn't always, but I want it to. I want, it, I want my life and my worship, and again, not just what we do on a Sunday morning, but what we do with our lives, and a Sunday's a part of that, but it's everything else to elicit the response of people like, you're crazy. And I just want to say, yeah, I am. But I want to be like, listen, if you, if you think it's crazy that I, like, I love Jesus and I worship Jesus who, like, who claimed to be God in the flesh, who walked this earth, who, who taught, who did miracles, who healed people, who died on a cross for my sins and your sins and the sins of the world to redeem and to reconcile people. And that was all this, this self-sacrificial, motivated by love. He rose from the dead. If all of that's true, and, and like, like billions of people have followed him throughout history and he's changed the world and it's shaped the world, like, I don't think it's that crazy to follow that guy. I think it's a lot more crazy to worship things that we know won't last. 
that we know will let us down, that have a track record of letting us down. I think it's, I think it's crazy to say, I'm going to put all my hope and let my world revolve around anything else that will let me down, that will leave me broken, that won't carry me, that isn't worthy through the difficulties of life. I want to worship the, the only one who, if, tr- if it's true, and again, that's a different conversation we can talk about. Is all this legit? I think it is. But if it's true, he's the only one who's worthy of worship. He's the only one who deserves it. I want to be someone, and I hope you do too, that we, we take the posture of being at Jesus' feet, that we sit at his feet and we learn. We sit at his feet and say, I, I want to learn. I want to be transformed. I, I want, Jesus, I want you to make me a better and more beautiful human. I want you to lead me into the way of flourishing. I want us to be people that, that we fall at his feet when life falls apart. When things are awful, we fall at his feet and say, I don't like this, but I, at least I know you're in this with me. And you'll let me be at your feet. I want us to be people that kneel at his feet and pour out everything that we are, pour out our love and our devotion because he has loved us first and he is worthy. I want to worship at the feet of Jesus. And to ask the question that if you're not someone who's following him or if we, it's like I'm following, but I've got other things at the center of my life, I want to say, can we, can we say the same things about the other stuff? The other things that we put at the center of our universe, do they truly transform us into better and more beautiful humans and into the way of flourishing? The other things that we worship, will it, will it comfort me in suffering and in my darkest days? The other things that we worship, does it, does it love me and have my best interest in mind? Jesus says, I do. I'm worthy. I'm deserving. Give me all your worship. Fall at my feet. And in doing so, when we lay down, we say, it's the most, the most valuable thing I have is my life. And Jesus, it is yours. We receive back more than we could ever imagine. Grace, forgiveness, and love, and mercy, and goodness, and joy, the, the fruit of the spirit that Paul talked about earlier. And we experience a life that we can't imagine. He's worthy. Let's pray. God, thanks so much. Um, that you are worthy. And it's not, a, it's not a worthiness that's just based on theory. It's not a worthiness that's based on, I hope it's true, but no, it's a, it's a worthiness based on the revelation of who you are in your son, Jesus. That you, you became human. That you walked this planet. You, 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 lived, you lived a life we couldn't live. You died the death we should have died. You rose from the dead, defeating the power of death once and for all. We thank you for that. And for that, we say you are worthy. You are deserving of our worship. You are the only thing that will carry us through the darkest times in life. So God, I pray that you would just make us a people that are transformed by the power of your spirit, that we would be a people that live our lives at your feet, that we'd be people that learn from you, that seek after you, who are empowered by you. And God, in those moments where we inevitably as fallen and broken people will turn away and run to one of these other things and put them at the center of our lives. God, remind us that you are gracious to forgive. Because of your death on the cross, there's always forgiveness. There's always grace. There's always a fresh start. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.